I'm Jason Diakite, and I'm here as always with my dear brother, Chef Marcus Samuelson. Together we create this moment, and it's a podcast that connects BIPOC communities across the world through story, music, food, culture, life. All right. What's up, Marcus? How you doing? I'm excited about, um, you know, this time of the year. It's always exciting for a chef. So what's on the agenda for this week, man? I hear you got something special cooking. We're finishing off here uh, Women's Month really, really strong. And we want to celebrate that by hearing three different voices in the food, hospitality, and the storytelling industry. And kicking it off, we're starting off with Dawn Davis. Dawn Davis. Dawn Davis. Editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit magazine. The first black woman to hold that role ever. She's a rock star, and she's already changing the magazine. Every issue just gets better and better. And she's talking to us today about how the April issue is going to look like. And it's actually a retro issue where she goes back to 1971 because it was a game-changing year in food in the U.S. The salad bar was introduced in 1971. I mean, it's just, it's so deep. And we brought in some really interesting writers to explore these issues. Oh, so who else do we have, Marcus? Well, I mean, the cool thing is here, we're going three different countries, right? So representing Canada, we got Gail Simmons. She's absolutely amazing. She's the most known for being one of the judges at Top Chef, but she actually started in the kitchen. She worked both back of the house, front of the house, and also wrote for magazine. And again, showing that once you enter the food hospitality industry, there's so many different places that you can end up in. And I was told by many mentors along the way that if I wanted to truly differentiate myself, if I wanted to like learn the language of food so that I could write about it with authority and gain the respect of the people whose stories I wanted to tell, I needed to be able to speak their language. You know, you need to come to the table prepared. She's one of the most important and powerful voices in food in America today. You know what's amazing with both Gail and Dawn? They're really sharing their platforms as well with other chefs, storytellers, writers, and artists. Gail constantly does these cool sort of Twitter or Instagram takeover with other chefs and women of color, black chefs, and so on. And Dawn has introduced Bon Appetit to some amazing writers, artists, and poets like Nika Giovanni is now writing for the magazine that never happened before. That leads us to our last country, because we have Canada, we got the United States, but a country that I, from anyway, from my own observations, know that there aren't a lot of, aren't enough people of color in the kitchens, writing for the magazines or for the newspapers, is Sweden. So who do we have from our home country, Marcus? You know, representing Sweden, Stockholm via South Korea, and of course, the nation of adopted kids that I represent too, we got... Emily Svensson. Um, she was adopted. Her story is amazing. She was adopted from South Korea, but, you know, grew up in Stockholm and opened her restaurant, Agnes. And again, her journey to now owning restaurant Agnes uh, in Stockholm, uh, it just shows you that very often how you end up in our specific field, you can start in so many different starting points. But I do think that Emily's story is the one that a lot of people can relate to. Maybe it wasn't the industry she wanted to start in. Maybe it was just something that gave her her first start, but she fell in love with it. 
and she kept on just serving and then eventually opened her own place. And now she's making a major difference in Stockholm. I loved it from the beginning. I love to meet people. I learned so much for such, from such talented people here, here in the hospitality business, I think. Before we dive in, I want to let you all know that this episode is sponsored by CD On, the leading marketplace in the Nordics. CD On has a wide range of millions of products, home electronics, kitchen appliances, beauty, fashion, toys, sports, outdoor gear, books, movies, music, video and computer games, computers and computer products. You name it, they got it. That's really cool. And it's super convenient and easy as well on CD On. You can compare prices, products, and even, you know, and this this is really good, and even sellers, right? They have something for everyone, no matter the age or your interest, you know, including Jason's music. (laughs) 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 Or your cookbooks. Everything in one place. CD on means a great deal. 
for both print and digital in terms of uh, magazine mm. production. What what I I love I was lucky enough to get it early and I love the direction here but you also go into different places right for example you talk about one of my heroes um, Edna Lewis and what she meant for the industry you do a whole piece about you know the iconic American restaurant what I would say probably one of top three most important restaurant influential restaurant in America Chepani and and sort of what that that the team that came out of that, how that changed how we eat in America. So it's, it's, it's full of rich stories. Absolutely. So I started thinking about 50 years and three things stood out immediately. One is that shape needs open. And when I worked on my own book, which you're familiar with, if you can stand the heat about chefs and restaurateurs, what came up time and again is how Alice Waters had influenced different generations of chefs who in turn influenced different generations of chefs. So that was exciting. Of course, Starbucks also opened in Seattle in 1971. And then the quarter pounder was introduced. And that alone would be interesting. <laughs> that alone, and I saw that as kind of high-low, right? You have Chafin and you have the hamburger, the quarter pounder. But then the team found so many other interesting things. So for example, Willy Wonka, the movie, was actually produced to sell candy bars. I think it was like an Uba bar that they were trying to sell, right? And so uh, and then Edna Lewis was becoming an author and really working and developing ideas that would become her, her masterwork. I even learned, or my team learned, that Diet for a Small Planet, which is really talking about how we treat the environment, how we treat the Earth's resources in terms of what we eat, was published in 1971. Mm. The salad bar was introduced in 1971. I mean, it's just, yes, it's yes, so yes. deep. And we brought in some really interesting writers to explore these issues, some with humor, some with retrospection. It's just all there, I think. I mean, there's a couple of things that I take about this year, 1971. Uh, first of all, the music, right? It's one of the times where Marvin, what's going on, is coming out. It's uh, towards the end of the Vietnam War, but it's also the music you know, height of Stevie's really like incredible period of, of making amazing music. And you guys launched a playlist with this as well, right? I'm so excited. I asked Josiah Bell, whose Instagram feed I started following during the pandemic, if he would, you know, consider getting a playlist together for us on Spotify. And he came back two days later and said, I didn't realize how much of the music I love was made in 1971. So the epic record, What's Going On, uh, by Marvin Gaye, Led Zeppelin, Stevie Wonder, you know, you name it, uh, Isaac Hayes. It's just on and on. I can't wait to share it with the world. It's a really deep, creative time for the culture. And also, Soul Train, I have to say, uh, <laughs> was launched in 1971. So it shows you that, yes, it was uh, the Nixon era was coming to an end. So much was going on politically. But out of that political churn, I think came a lot of interesting creativity. Yeah, and it, there's a lot of other really cool pieces in here, like uh, the fact that you talk about Panthers Breakfast Program, for example. That's very interesting to me. And then you have the retro dishes that I love here, the cheese fondue, uh, the beef wellington and stuff like that. So it must have been fun to go back sort of to these classics and decide which is going to go in and which, you know, 
which maybe didn't make the issue, but it was fun looking at. Right? We, we have so much that we couldn't put it all in the print issue, but on BA.com, you'll find more, more things that were invented in 1971. Uh, another fun one is the Cuisinart, right? So how we home cooks, how the domestic cook was able to cook. And a lot of it was also about women getting into the workplace, hamburger helpers, so that we could work at night, work late, but get home and have a meal on the table for the children. The Cuisinart, same thing. It, it enabled us to uh, more rapidly expedite whatever we were cooking. So I think you can look at, at 1971 as this real cultural churn and a lot of interesting things come out of it. So. If the hamburger helper was of 1971, the running up and down and your home office will be of the 2021. It's also the year, actually, when I, you know, that I found out later. It was also the year that I was born. Oh. You know, when I was, I, I was born and uh, there was no birth certificate. And my father, when we got to Sweden, he just decided, like, okay, today's your sister's birthday. Six months later, it's your birthday. And they just picked the birthday. And then eventually, through a lot of paperwork, a lot of stuff, eventually they figured out that I was born in October in 1971. They could never nail down the date. Oh. But um, so I always have this, like, I basically have three birthdays. I have November 7th. No, November 6th. That became my birthday for my dad. And then... Wikipedia has put out this weird birthday, which is not my birthday, it's in January. Uh, so I get tons of sort of text and emails during that day. But in my real birthday, which is in October, <laughs> we haven't figured out the date. So, so anyway, so, so that's all in 1971. So that means you're going to turn the big 5-0 this year, Marcus. And, and that brings me I, to another thing, which is where I spent my big 5-0. My husband planned yes. a surprise birthday party for me. And I said, do not, do not surprise me. I do not want a surprise birthday party. And it was at your amazing restaurant. Uh, so yeah. I was... When we could all be together, you know, like pre-pandemic. But, but yes, it does mean that. But, you know, I don't even know if... I guess at that point in fall, we can get together. I don't know yet. Oh, absolutely. I'll, I'll have to do a revised edition and put Marcus's birthday on, <laughs> on the timeline. Okay, so you two issues into it. What does spring look like? What are you excited about coming in your May issue and your June issue? Like, what are some of the sort of the highlights that you look forward to to, to um, um, launch this spring? Yeah, so May, we were thinking a lot about, and I hope everyone is thinking a lot about sustainability. Mm -hmm. And so we will be, uh, you know, giving some delicious lunches that are, or, sorry, meals that are seasonal and looking at what's in the market and how to make something nutritious and fun and delicious for your family mm -hmm. and your friends to the extent that you're able to gather safely. But we're also looking at sustainability. So we have a great uh, look at food waste. And I learned that some of the best, you know, vitamins and nutrition and taste even come, say, from broccoli stems. So we've got, you know, how can we maximize that flavor and make a, a salsa verde or something to accompany a grilled meat? So we're really looking 360 at um, food in this issue, which I think is really fun. Hmm. One of the things that I've noticed too, I mean, obviously there was like three major things last year, right? There was the virus, there was the conversation around social, social justice, and it was the election. And I do think um, something that has been great to see in the magazine that it's super inclusive and the conversation around social justice 
uh, you know, Nikki Giovanni is writing pieces for the magazine now, for example. And um, in the March issue, you were talking about um, lunch cafeterias and so on. I just think the equality and equity around food and who gets to tell the stories, it's it's obviously a huge, huge um, topic. How do you think we can deal with that better? And how do you what, what do you see the future of that looks like? So I think for me, and I've been thinking a lot about this, it's broadening the lens of who gets included in the pages and how we define, you know, what is admirable and what should be in a magazine like Bon Appetit. So for instance, in the March issue, we had a story called The Hands That Feed Us. And I love this one. I love all of the people that were profiled, but I've actually had the privilege of working um, at the Red Door and they provide you know, meals on Saturdays to those in need. And the food is delicious. Marcus. Honestly, the hardest thing is mm. volunteering there and not being able to, to eat or taste. Um, but this woman, Nancy Burgos Jackson has worked. She's a professionally trained chef, but she chooses to work there. And typically when we mm. profile chefs, they're from new restaurants or hot restaurants or fancy restaurants. But I think, and we're going to always go hard on that, but we can also include someone like a Nancy as well. Um, mm. I also had, Lando Castile's mother uh, in the Marvel yes. issue because her son was a cafeteria worker who knew all of his cap- all of his students' names and their preferences and who was shy and who had allergies. And that's part of the food story in America too. Who feeds our children and, you know, um, how are they treated? I think that that, again, come for the recipes, but while you're here, let's talk about some things related to food unemotional, but also like, how did you find yourself in the workplace? It's been such a, you know, I think about it because basically this week is the one year anniversary where everybody sort of closed shop, right? It was when March 15 was when Red Rooster shut down and became a community kitchen. And it was really when we had to, it wasn't something, COVID wasn't something that we heard on the news anymore. It really started to impact our lives in through the workplace. So if you look back at this year, uh, What's your takeaway? That is such a good question. So I started the year working with authors on books and, you know, packed up manuscripts and headed out to where we uh, set the pandemic out or or the lockdown down. I think one of the takeaways is that people in the line of work that I was doing as a book editor can work at home just as as well as they can in the office. That uh, if your work is contemplative, um, you can do that, but we miss the camaraderie of our colleagues. And I think there's some creative energy that happens when you're ideating with other people. So I think it's kind of a give and take, uh, in the middle of that, I got a call from you and a couple of other people about transitioning to Bon Appetit. And, you know, one of the challenges, and it's been interesting is getting to learn a whole new team through Zoom. Mm-hmm. And so I've learned about both the strengths and the shortcomings of technology. And it can't really replace just being in the same room. I think the energy can still be high, but I don't think it's exactly the same. Hmm. I, I, I agree with that. And 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 everybody works different, right? Uh, both you and I, we, we do our best work with people and we lose that 
in the room feeling, it's just not the same on Zoom, right? Like a, you can have a high energy and drive, but it is something when you, you, you are in the room versus you are virtually in the room. And how was it? Uh, so that's on the professional side, but also on with your family, for example, how was on your personal side, like being away from the city, coming back to the city, going through all of these mask on, mask off, like all of this that we all had to go through. Yeah. You know, look, I am a working mom first and foremost, whether the media is magazines or books. And so I do think whoever is doing the bulk of the, uh, you know, house maintenance, it has been a heck of a year, right? I, I, you've heard me talk about this before. I used to say, Feeding two teenagers in the middle of a pandemic, there was a fourth meal that I didn't even know existed. You know, they wanted a second lunch. I called a second lunch and I, I was, I just had whiplash. It's like the, the dishes are not even dry from, from the first lunch. Uh, so I won't lie. I think it was a challenge. I do not think that families were meant to spend 24 hours together in, in one, in one place. Uh, but on the other hand, there've been some gifts, right? I get to spend this mm -hmm. time, formative time in my children's lives up close and personal, and we've, we've grown together. So look, I always look for the silver lining and it has been fun, but I think it's been hard for all people. If you have young toddlers, it's difficult. Yeah. If you have no children, it's difficult. So we've all had to dig in the common thread. You asked me, I think people gravitate towards stories. You know, people mm -hmm. wanted humor as a way out. So we were sending each other funny texts about cooking the fourth lunch. People started watching the same show. People started talking about the books mm -hmm. they were reading. So I, that's where I really feel connected, the most connected to what we're doing at Bon Appetit after providing these amazing recipes is providing a framework for good storytelling around people who provide food service, entrepreneurs in the food space, essential workers in the food space, uh, chefs in this food space, restaurateurs have had to pivot and be successful at that pivot in the workspace. Those are the kinds of things that interest me now. Well, Dawn, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for leading the team. Thank you for inspiring us. You always do it with a smile. You always do it with this incredible upbeat energy. And for me, I just want to say it's been such a privilege to be part of your journey and watch you navigate through all the ups and downs that happens in our world. I hope this year the, the word of 21 will be empathy because you show a lot of grace and empathy in your work and we appreciate you. Thank you, Don Davis, and keep cooking. And Marcus, I appreciate you too. You have no idea. Thank you. Wow, Marcus, I had no idea that 1971 was such a big year in food. Yeah, don't sleep on the Swiss cheese fondue, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I never would. I never, I'd sleep after having a Swiss cheese fondue. You're right. <laughs> but so, never sleep on it. <laughs> so the, this issue of Bon Appetit is called How 1971 Changed Food Forever, and it's out now. Uh, you can find it on bonappetit.com amazing issue and like i said do not ever sleep on the swiss cheese fondue mm. up next we got the canadian sensation gail simmons you know gail simmons is one of my favorite people in the world she knows how to cook she knows how to eat and she knows how to talk about it in the most eloquent ways you know her story for me is where you can learn so much because a lot of people especially women coming into the industry they might not know where do i fit in 
She's a great example of if you just stay in the industry and navigate through it, anything can happen. So how are you, Gail? Welcome to this moment. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Marcus. Any opportunity to talk to you, any opportunity to see you, even though it's not in real life, uh, I will take it. I will always take it. Thank you. How's the family? How's the kids? How's the husband? How's everybody? They're good. Mostly good. You know, we we are pandemic fine, as they say. We really are. We are, you know, we're in somewhat of a groove every day is a new day and the spring is in the air vaccines are on their way and i feel like i feel like we're we're able to have a little more hope these days our things are looking up can you tell us a little bit about your background and unpack that for us sure my father's family is south african he was born and raised in south africa three generations south african um but he immigrated to England and then to Canada in the 60s. Met my mom in Canada. My mom's from Montreal. Uh, grew up. She's first generation Canadian. Both of her parents are Eastern European. They came between the First and Second World War to Canada through the St. Lawrence River. They came, you know, escaping the anti-Semitism anti and the pogroms of Eastern Europe. My parents met in Toronto and raised us in Toronto. And... Um, so we grew up with a, a a big sense of the world, I think. Um, I think that Canadians in general are incredibly aware of the rest of the world. Our, our news is often international and, you know, it doesn't center solely around North America exclusively. And so, and my parents were great travelers and my father's entire family was always in Africa. So we spent a lot of our childhood almost every year or every other year um, in South Africa with my family. Uh, which was amazing. And my parents then loved to travel so that when we were old enough, we, you know, they, they showed us the world. And I think it really ignited in me my love of food and travel and culture and set me on my path. Can you just walk us through a little bit about, you know, how's food and media changed since sort of like the 20 years that you've been in the industry? And because I do think you're also a big champion for a lot of people that want to come to food but they might not know exactly where do I belong? And is it okay for me to move from back of the house to front of the house? Or is it okay for me to leave the restaurant and go somewhere else? Oh, I don't even want to work in a restaurant. And I think you're such a great inspiration to people. Uh, thank you. You know, finding my place in the food world was not um, necessarily a plan. You know, and I think that I get that question a lot. You know, young people or people career changing want to come into food or want to change their role in food. And I will be the first to tell you that, like, I did not have a plan. I, I, when I set out to be in food media, food media meant something entirely different, you know, because I'm old. Um, and uh, when I decided I wanted to work in the food industry, which was around my last year of college, probably, when I realized that I loved food and I loved cooking and I loved writing about it, and I started writing restaurant reviews in college for um, my student newspaper. Which, and I wasn't getting paid for it or anything. It was just like, oh, I'm going to go out to eat because it's fun and I'm going to write about it. Um, and little did I know that I would continue to do iterations of that for the next 20 years, 25 years. So, um, you know, I, I came to New York for culinary school specifically because I wanted to write about food. Because at the time, in the late 90s, Food media meant publishing. 
you know, the internet existed. I think I got my first email address in like 1997 or 1998 or whatever, but there were no blogs. There were certainly no social media. There was the Food Network in its infancy, but it was like four or five male chefs doing cooking demos and possibly sissy biggers, right? And so that wasn't even in my purview. Like that was not even in my realm of thought. For me, food media meant food writing, meant one of five food magazines. Um, So wait a minute. So there's an AOL account on a a dial-up and there's definitely Emery Legacy saying bam. That's all I have in front of me now. (laughs) And that is you are setting the mood, right? And it was a mood. Uh, But that was what, you know, food media really like, Food writing was either, and especially as a Canadian, there weren't many opportunities in Canada for major food writing, especially if you were like a 21, 22-year-old girl with no experience, right? There was a couple pages in newspapers. uh, There were a couple pages in the back of women's magazines. um, And then there was, you know, the big heavy hitters, the Food & Wine, Gourmet, Bon Appetit, Cook's Illustrated, um, Fine Cooking, that kind of thing. And so uh, we consumed all American media in Canada, more or less. I mean, yes, I consumed Canadian magazines, but there weren't any major food magazines in Canada. We just were, I was, I grew up reading gourmet and food and wine. So I knew that if I wanted to really learn the language of food for the purpose of writing about it, that I needed to be in New York and I needed to go to culinary school. Uh, I never set out to be a chef. I will never call myself a chef. Uh, because I don't run a kitchen, right? Like I'm not a boss of a team. I am not running a kitchen every day. I am the chef of my house. Um, although the brigade, the, the brigade of people are not such good listeners. Um, but you're an awesome cook, by the way, for all the <laughs> listeners. You're an awesome cook. cook. And like, yeah. I, and I am proud of that. I am absolutely a professional cook and I am a, uh, a trained cook, but I am a cook. And I'm proud to be a cook. Um, but I never I never set out to be a chef going to culinary school. But I knew, and I was told by many mentors along the way, that if I wanted to truly differentiate myself, if I wanted to like learn the language of food so that I could write about it with authority and gain the respect of the people whose stories I wanted to tell, I needed to be able to speak their language. You know, you need to come to the table prepared. So I went to culinary school and... And then I, you know, my culinary school convinced me that instead of just doing my, you know, my apprenticeship, you have to do an externship, as you know, uh, they, they convinced me that instead of just doing an externship, like going right to Gourmet Magazine and working in the test kitchen, if I could, or something like that, as an intern, to go in to cook on the line, to cook in some restaurants. And I fought that idea. But in the end, they won. And they assured me that it would, you know, prove to solidify my education. And I, and I did understand that culinary school, it's like any quick experience, you know, just cause you've completed medical school doesn't make you an experienced open heart surgeon. It's a bad example, but you know what I mean? You're certainly not trusting a kid one day at a culinary school to run a kitchen or to head up a food magazine. Like there is a lot in between there that has to happen. And so, uh, so they convinced me to go into restaurants and I, I cooked, I worked at two really big New York restaurants on the line. You know, there were very few women in either of my kitchens at all. And if there were any, they were in pastry at the time. Um, And I wasn't treated fantastically, uh, but I also wasn't 
treated egregiously, thankfully, because I have many friends who were. I gained so much respect for restaurant workers in that time in my life. Tell me about how did you get the gig at Top Chef? And did you, like, this is now, not only has it been transformative for you, but that show has also been transformative for our industry. Uh, so Top Chef came to me completely serendipitously, completely out of, like, out of left, saying out of left field is like an understatement. I worked for Danielle Boulou for almost three years um, in PR and events for him and became very close with the people at Food & Wine magazine. And um, about two and a half years into my job, someone from Food & Wine who I'd become very close with came to Danielle for dinner and we were chatting and he said, you know, I'm leaving Food & Wine magazine. Uh, I have a, another venture. I want to open a restaurant and do other things. But I'm thinking that you, Gail, could be good for my job. And I took the job and whatever the magazine was talking about that month, I would be the person who would go on TV to represent them. And then about a year into the job, um, Bravo, uh, the network, the TV network, had recently just relaunched and had uh, just had this huge runaway success with Project Runway. Just coming off of the success of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, the original Queer Eye. And, um, and had launched Project Runway, you know, about young talent, finding talent, a fashion competition series. And they decided to spin it off into the other sort of pillars of what Bravo was at the time, food being the next one. So they wanted to recreate the model of Project Runway with food. And so they came to Food & Wine to our publisher and our editor-in-chief at the time and said, we have this great idea for this food competition show, unlike any other, because there was nothing out there. Like, if we can go back to 2005, the competition reality world was like Big Brother and Fear Factor, right? Um, not shows I would ever be on, because I would be too completely afraid. And so they said, we have this idea for a competition series about the real life of young chefs and discovering young talent. And we want to make it serious about food, about the industry, about like swinging open the kitchen door of restaurants and really seeing what it takes to be a chef. And Tom Colicchio had just signed on and they asked Food & Wine, would you partner with us? Teach us about the world of chefs, help us partner on the prize. Um, and in exchange, we'll allow you to have one of your editors sit at the judge's table to represent the magazine. So they basically... Who would I, that be? It's hilarious to think about now because I remember my boss, Christina Gerdovich, who is a longtime friend and mentor, both of ours. Obviously, we're both very close to her and still is. Um, she called me in her office on like a random Tuesday. And I swear to you, these were my words. She said to me, there's this idea for a show. She gave me the synopsis. You have to, what do you mind? Just go to 30 Rock tomorrow and have, do a screen, a screen test for this show because they're, we're trying to see if you would be the right person to, to represent. And I looked at her like she was speaking another language. And I was like, I'm sorry, what, what, what is a screen test? Like, what are you talking about right now? You want me to be on reality television? Like, this is the worst idea and I can't believe you're putting me up for this craziness. Um, and I went because it was my job. And a couple weeks later, they called me back and said, okay, like literally pack your bags. We're moving to San Francisco. We're going to shoot the first season of this show. 
And that was kind of it. Like I went, I did the three, we spent three weeks in San Francisco, Tom and I, and the early rendition of our crew. And I came back and I went back to my job at Food & Wine. I thought it was a one-shot deal. I never thought about it again. The show aired to sort of mixed reviews at the beginning. And then it started to pick up speed. And by the end of season one, we were like floored by the response. We could not believe because our biggest fears was, was that it would kind of disgrace us to our industry. But we realized it was it was like the professional kitchen that people wanted to see. No, it, and it's transformed the industry. There's a couple of things that I learned from all of this. First of all, your curiosity drives you. You you say that these things happen, but you actually also created your own luck very much because you kept it moving. You tried different things. I'm sure some better than others, yes. but you were there. And also, you've been around some amazing yes. mentors that so you, you kind of knew, you know, under this JG train here, there's going to be yeah. a lot of things yeah. to learn, right? And and that, because this is kind of a notebook for a young, curious person that wants to be in our industry. And I think that you are such a good example of that. The other thing that, there's two other things around this that I really love about you, but also about the show. It took also food away from only New York City yeah. or San Francisco. Top Chef, more than anything, has really transformed local American cooking. I don't think there is a city, you yeah, guys, big city you haven't been around. to yet. But that's it, it, Oh, it's vital. And I so, actually think, Marcus, that the location, the fact that I don't think there's any food show really that does this except Top Chef, that every season is shot in a different city around the country. And our finales are at this point now everywhere around the world um, really is the the best and most sort of um, integral layer of our show because food transforms from city to city and it it brings in history and culture and geography and terroir and ingredient di and diversity and all the things that make every table regionally different around the country, around the world. And so the backdrop of our show being different every season had a, has allowed us to not only kind of stay relevant, stay new, stay fresh, but at the, the core of it, it has allowed us to have new conversations about food everywhere we go. And to, it's almost like anthropology, right? It's like we get to dig really deep into where we are and, and experience that not just as the judges, but as the chefs cooking for us. Um, you know, they come from all over the country. Often they don't have any point of reference for where we are and we all get to discover it together, including our viewers and we come away changed. The other thing that you do very, very well, I'm always impressed how you do it. You have a platform, you acknowledge and you recognize your platform, and you always bring people in to this platform. Sometimes somebody does an Instagram takeover yeah. on your platform, and I think that's also a great example for people that are building a platform. They should look, they should really follow you and look what you're doing, because whether it is Somebody that our friend Clancy, they're starting a yeah. new magazines and building an audience. Do you know what? Gail's going to follow her and let her do a takeover. Where did that come from? That you acknowledge, okay, I'm here. I now have this platform, but I also have a responsibility in that. When did that start I, I to sort know. of I don't know. Maybe it's like the Canadian in me. I don't want to simplify it or, or like, you know, I, that I just, I don't know. The conversation's always more interesting when I'm not talking to myself. You know what I mean? I'm sick of myself, Marcus. Yeah. 
been around myself for <laughs> 44 years and I'm so over it. Uh, no, truthfully, I, I really just believe in the, the a dialogue. It's so much more interesting than just sitting and like navel gazing. And, uh, you know, we all struggle with marketing and social media and the the pros and cons of it. But the way that I have for myself felt engaged with the people who follow me and with the people I'm most interested in is by like opening it up and making it a conversation. So, um, you know, I've done it in different ways and that's the beauty. There's no rules. I learn a lot. I meet people that I maybe didn't know about and so on. So that's why I really appreciate it. It is curated, but it's also based on curiosity, you know? I think so. I hope so. I, I feel like, you know, my social media has a lot of pros and cons for me for like everyone. I mean, I feel like it's very loaded and it can be very uh self-serving and yes, we're all aware that we're brands and we're our voice leads to profit and like, you know, we have platforms to capitalize on for good or for also for making a living. But where I feel the most comfortable is when it's a dialogue. That to me is far more interesting than talking to myself. Um, and, you know, this year, I think there was a, a reckoning in this country that forced all of us uh, to look inward and to examine who we are, who we follow, what the world around us looks like. And I want it to look different. I do. Like, I'm not happy with how the world looks around me right now, uh, literally and figuratively, you know, like literally I want it to look different different to look more diverse i want my that goes for everything from like i want my feed to be more diverse i want it my my exchanges i want the people i talk to and my perspective to be more diverse so how do you start well i started by like engaging with the people who i find the most interesting and for many months this year that to me was women in the food industry who have not been necessary who have been overlooked in certain ways and and the black community of chef women chefs i mean women chefs in general we know are underrepresented african-american women chefs like it's it's absurd and it's heart crushing and infuriating and so why not just try i mean I, if i have a platform and if i could not only change what my feed looks like but by doing so change what my followers feeds look like and introduce them to someone new. Uh, so, I mean, there's so many beautiful voices and, and I'm so proud of of the food community and, and what they've done. So I've just tried to sort of engage with some of the women there. Um, and then also, you know, another piece of food media that is a passion of mine, but that also is, uh, I think, harder than ever in its work right now is cookbooks. And there's so many beautiful cookbooks being made that, you know, I'm overwhelmed by them in my house and I love them all, but I and I really want to like carve out time to cook. For, I really cook from them. So I thought, wouldn't it be fun if I went to uh, people who were coming in new cookbooks and chose my favorite new cookbooks um, all by people who, you know, are in, you know, the, the word minority is such a broad word, but in one or the other sense of the word, very loosely, um, you know, people who I just want their voices heard more and amplified and like, let's cook together because that's connection. So I've been doing a lot of like cookbook live takeovers uh, about, you know, highlighting a different cookbook once a week, uh, cooking live with the author and talking about their book. Beautiful. Thank you, Gail. Uh, we love you and uh, enjoy, enjoy this time. And I know soon we can all get together properly again. 
can't wait to see you and your whole family. It's gonna feel good, Marcus. Thank you to you and yours too. I miss you guys. We all miss you. You know, it's always great catching up with Gail. She's such a force. She's so fierce and I'm always a big fan. For all our listeners that want to know more about what Gail Simmons is doing, you can just follow her at Gail Simmons Eats. That's Gail Simmons Eats. Marcus, I remember we had a conversation a few weeks ago where I was asking you about what uh, diversity looks like in the Swedish food industry. And it seems like our next guest definitely is someone who can speak on that. Yeah, Emily Svensson is amazing. And I think... Emily's journey is something that we can all learn from. It just shows that diverse, there's a bigger need for more voices in Sweden. And Emily is a great example. First of all, Emily, welcome to uh, this moment. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm very flattered that you want to have me on on this really cool podcast. So um, how did you... You own a restaurant in Stockholm. How old is the restaurant? How did you come up with the name? Oh, uh, the restaurant is a little bit more than five years. And the name Agnes, it's uh, it's both because we are situated at Norra Angenegatan. It's the name yeah. of the street. But if if you pronounce it in Swedish, it's, uh, it's a male name. And I didn't want a male name on my restaurant. I wanted like a really nice female name like Agnes. I like that. And how did you enter the restaurant business? Why did it become hospitality for you? How did you, how did you start your journey? Oh, the, in the beginning, I was just very tired of school, I think. <laughs> so I started to work at Arlanda. It's an airport here in Stockholm. Our only, no, we have two, but it's the more international one. And worked at a cafe and, and bar there when I was 17, 18 or something. Uh, I continued in high school, but I never thought it was that was not not for me in that time. Uh, and then I just uh, I did I guess kind of okay, so I got some more jobs, and then then we just continued in that way. I loved it from the beginning. I loved to meet people. I learned so much for such from such talented people here here in the hospitality business. I think and. Is Agnes your first restaurant? Yes, it's my first uh, like ownership, the restaurant that I own. Then I've been manager at some other restaurant, uh, Tranan, you probably know. Mm-hmm. At the of course. It's a really classic restaurant, Swedish classic food, uh, over like 130, 140 years old. And uh, also a French bistro that called Deville. It's not open anymore, but it was uh, lovely during that time. And then I also actually studied a lot of um, uh, political science and uh, sociology at the Stockholm University. So I mixed that for a very long time. So we share many things. One thing we share is obviously our love for hospitality and and serving and and giving people uh, special moments in restaurants. But we also adopted, and we both adopted in the 70s, you posted the other day, you posted your Korean um, passport. I thought it was such a bold statement. Yeah, Tell me a little bit about your upbringing and when you came to Sweden and how was that journey? 
Yeah, so I was just five months when I came to Sweden. Came to Sweden. My in uh, I have a four-year-old sister as well. She's born seventy-two, uh, and but in in my case, my father, my Swedish father, uh, went down and and picked me up in Korea, South Korea, uh, in Seoul. Uh, the thing is, I I always thought that uh, I was born in Seoul, but I just learned the other day when I looked at my adoption papers that I was born in a city in south of South Korea. You know, you get, you get chills when you see that because I haven't looked at my adoption papers. So of, every time, you know, I, I can forget many times that I'm adopted, especially nowadays. I'm like, I, I'm really super comfort to be like a Korean-Swedish person because I know a lot of people, you probably do that too, that, that really has been feeling really lost all their lives. Well, I mean, adoption adoption is such a personal um, endeavor for the three parties involved, like the parents that give up for adoption, the, the child, and then also the, the new parents that you start your life with, right? There's a really... There's a there's a back and forth between these three parties if they're alive uh, constantly. Um, did you when did you start? You said something that is quite powerful. I'm comfortable being Korean Swedish adopted, but growing up as a kid, didn't you just want to be a Swedish kid or like? Yeah, this- I tried so hard. Uh, to be Swedish, you know, and of course, like you're also grown up in Sweden, and and it's like you have kind of a Swedish soul because I I grown up in like a super middle class family, you know, one car, a cat, you know, everything. We go we have <laughs> vacation every year, yeah, the super like uh, normal life. Yeah, and but and it, when I was younger, I was really really wanted to be. Uh, Swedish, and I even blonde my hair once. That, I, that just turned like a red, so it doesn't didn't happen for me. But, you know, <laughs> we tried, we tried, we yeah, tried. Yeah, we tried so hard, you know, to be like av- average Swedish person. But like you, you said, we are both in bo- grown up, uh, or uh, we were born in the seventies and grown up in the eighties and nineties. And you really, really learned that you are not Swedish during the 90s because there were lots of neo-Nazis here, and especially, I don't know, but in Stockholm, it was a lot where I'm growing up. So you oh, co- no. couldn't go through the old town and you couldn't do things, you know. One of the things that you have now, a restaurant, of course, but it's also a medium where you can actually on a daily basis show who you are. So on the menu on Agnes, does your Korean identity come out? And, and so what So what dishes or what cocktails or how do you express that identity today? The, today we actually have a dish with, with like, like a suckling pig that we may always have with like Spanish things with it. So we change it now. So we serve it with the buns, and we serve it with kimchi and and samyang. So it's really nice. But actually, that's my head chef that is really good at that. I'm not. I'm not a chef. <laughs> so I give the credit to him. So the first time I went to Ethiopia and the first time I had berbere, which is such a you know big part of our Ethiopian identity, I felt like this is my spice blend. Although I hadn't had it before, maybe one time as a child. 
I was like 19, 20 or something like that. I was like, wow, I really love this. So when you had one major Korean dish, let's say kimchi or let's say, you know, um, any South Korean dish, did you feel like, wow, this is my jam, I understand it? Yes, I actually do. Uh, it's an old restaurant here in Sweden, uh, in Stockholm, called Arirang. Uh, it's, it's, uh, we, I usually, it's a Korean restaurant. Uh, I joke about it, that they are real Koreans, because they are real Koreans, not adopted sure. Koreans. Yeah, so, but the first time I ate the bibimbap there, yeah. it was so many years ago. I think it was my sister that like, yeah, we're going to go here. Uh, that was a really, really great experience. And I love that kind of food. I love the, the style of eating, that you share things. And that is what I also wanted to bring with Agnes. You're not, you, maybe you're not grilling on the table, but you're the, like, really, the, I think a meal should be shared. I think that's so, uh, so nice to, like, you, you're going to have this super nice feeling when you share things with others. But still, like... I love the, the, the sharing things and I love to like, I also had one other thing. I like to, to uh, cut my food with scissors. I heard that was a very Korean thing and I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, I know. You didn't know how that, stra- right? No, Jeez. how strange is that? So I, th- I think I have never been back to Korea. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In America, because of the, not only, but very much a previous administration had all kinds of names for COVID, right? And I don't want to go into the names, but there were definitely racism towards Asian American community and it spiked in American still have. What does racism in Sweden towards the Asian community, towards Asian women look like? Is it commentary on the subway or is it more silent? Can you help us understand that? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of Asian women are feeling like it's more like sexual because uh, unfortunately, because you know, it's like, we have kind of a lot of, of uh, women from Thailand here that are, are married to Swedish men. And, and you know, it's, it's, of course, it's not always perfect, but that, that is probably their choice sometimes. And, and I have friends that are married. So you always get from, when you're Asian woman in Sweden, I think you, you get more of this, like, uh, we are easy to buy. That's horrible, but that, that, that's a, a thing, you know, sexually, um, because it's a lot of Swedish men that, that are going to, to Thailand to buy sex. And that is really, really common in Sweden, and, and that's horrible. But also, when they come back, they, they are like, they don't understand that this is people. This is a person with feelings. So everything gets so mixed up. For it also a lot of guys that find their love there, mm-hmm. but it's hard to yeah, you know. It's a mixed it, bag, but yeah, so, yeah. So, but you wouldn't say it, it's, it's not so much in Sweden. It's not COVID related at all. It's more from the previous uh, history and, yeah. and so on. Uh, much more, but in the beginning, yes. My sister goes a lot with the subway. I'm always biking. <laughs> so she said like people were moving. She's also adopted from Korea, but not from the same family, but people were moving. So she was seeing a lot of that in the beginning. That is not so much uh, now, I think. Uh, but I, I guess it, it was more in the US when, when it started. Now it's really great because you have a vice president that are our African American and Asian American. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we are cool. very, very proud of our Kamala Harris. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask you is, um, how did the restaurant navigate through COVID? I mean, America, it's been, depending on which state, they've been start and stop, start and stop. 25%, 35%, 50%. How have you navigated, and as an entrepreneur, as a leader for your restaurant during these very, very difficult times? So as you said, it's really been back and forth. I, use, I always say like the whole COVID uh, year has been like, a, a whip, been like a whiplash, you know, all the time. You know, it's the most important thing for me is like I really, really would like to 
keep the team. Uh, of, of course, in March and April last year, we have to lay off, you know, all the extras. And, and, but we're still like 11, 12 people that, that could, you know, that I could keep. It's, it's costing the restaurant more, but I think it's worth it, actually, uh, because the restaurant are nothing uh, without them. As a restaurant leader, during probably the toughest time to ever drive through something, Give us some of the advantages of being a woman. What are the biggest advantages you can draw on that we as men should learn? One positive thing is that it's, it's different from the society, looked from the society to be a woman when you are a little bit older. I'm turning 45, so that's a really good age. It was harder for me when I was 20, but it's hard to be 20 overall, I think. Yeah. But I also think what I learned is like, I think that could be harder for men sometimes because when you start in this business, you, you learned, in that case, in the middle of the 90s, you learned to lead like a man, like men did. And it's easier for me to get out from that, to like really learn to lead or, or choose to lead like me like a woman or like me, or I don't have a big, you know, big shoes to like fill in that, in that way. I think that's easier in one way. And, and what are some of the, when you guys have challenges with the team, with back of the house, the kitchen is being backed up, or uh, what, what are some of the biggest obstacles that you have to sit down with the team and work out? And how do you, how do you go through these issues? I'm a, definitely a feminist. And the people that works for me, they know that. They are. They know that I'm not accepting. You know that you speak uh, in in a like a sexist way to one another. If you touch one of your colleagues in a way that they don't want to, that's not okay. I have no problem to like say, okay, you got one chance, but after that, you're out. You need to change your mind. You know, you need to change the way you think or the way you're acting, because if we are not doing it that, or if I I'm like a Rest, women, woman restaurateur not doing that. Who are going to do that then? So I think that's super important to talk a lot. I want to thank you so much, Emily, for highlighting these issues and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. Jason, the fact that in 2021 that we still working on equality, racial equality, and there's a lot of sexism, uh, for me, that gender equity, gender yeah. equity, this is failure. And uh, for someone like myself, that is both black, but also I wouldn't be specifically in this industry without women, right? My grandmother. If it, it weren't for Grandma Helga. Yes. So this is, for me, a shout out to women like Helga, like Edna Lewis, like incredible Sylvia Woods, but also to the stories of women that we that are on the unknown that we don't know about. Mm. That's why it's so important mm -hmm. to you know from Stockholm and Agnes Emily Svensson to Gail's journey, you know, to someone like Don Davis that is in the top of the food world right now, setting standards and examples. Uh, without women, this industry wouldn't work. So please, guys, we got to do better. Thank you so much, Dawn Davis, Gail Simmons, and Emily Svensson for coming on the show. Thank you, Marcus, for highlighting these stories and these amazing people. Also, if you're ever in Stockholm, check out Restaurant Agnes. I know I'll be doing it 
very shortly. And we'll see you again next week. So until then, peace out. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50-80% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.